Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. We've entered the second full week of the election in Canada as we enter the fourth wave of COVID in the middle of a climate emergency and the start of another uncertain school year is only a week away. Yikes. That's a lot to contend with, ladies. Thankfully, I have guests this week to inform and inspire us to keep us moving ahead despite the hurdles in the way. Anime Paul is on the campaign trail and on what she said this week. As you might expect from the leader of the Green Party of Canada, she has strong opinions about the environment. But Anime also shares her thoughts on women's rights, the economy, the timing of this election, and much more. In this week's RBC She's the Boss, we're profiling Red Girl Rising and the Matriarch Resistance. Ivy Richardson and Lisa Canoris founded their business on empowering Indigenous women and femmes through sisterhood relations, connection, and movement. It's time to pick up your medicine and collectively hold each other up in our strengths and power. Anne Brody has new entertainment this week, starting with Together, starring James McAvoy and Sharon Horgan, which takes a close look at a marriage with too much togetherness during the pandemic, something I'm sure quite a few people will relate to. The Lost Leonardo, a thriller documentary which Anne has declared one of her favorites of 2021, and the diminutive but mighty Marie Kondo is back on Netflix with sparking joy. York Region is one of the wealthiest regions in Canada, so it was surprising to hear that the area could see an expansion of its homeless ranks over the next year at 75 times the national average. Alina Turner from HelpSeeker.org joins me to share what their AI found across the country, but specifically for York Region, Ottawa, and Surrey. Spending like there's no tomorrow may not be the wisest idea. Stephanie Chabot from the Finance Diaries joins me to discuss YOLO spending, what it is, how to do it smartly, and where to put away for the future. Finally, Allie Payne, our expert on all things to do with teenagers, joins me to discuss the four horsemen of relationships and how to avoid these pitfalls with your teens so you can end baffling blow-ups and painful disconnection from your teens to create respectful relationships without giving up or giving in. It's another full week at what she said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. there are one or two big issues that Canadians think about before casting their vote at the polls. Nothing, however, is normal in 2021, and there are multiple competing priorities on our minds this year. The climate crisis, the economy, Indigenous relations and reconciliation, sweeping global unrest, and of course, COVID. Anime Paul, the leader of Canada's Green Party, is ready to take on those challenges and joins me today to discuss. Welcome back to the show, Anime. Thanks for having me. 
So this is actually the second time we've sp spoken this week, but only one interview people will hear. So I want to first uh, thank you for your graciousness. We did have a chat the other day and it didn't record of all things. So you were kind enough to come back. So thank you. Um, I do want to jump in on the climate crisis right away. The IPCC report that just came out recently was obviously devastating. We've locked in a, a you know a temperature increase. There's a lot to address here. Uh, how do we begin that? Like, what's the first task that you would take take on? Well, the first thing that we need to do is uh, is breathe uh, and uh, promise ourselves that we're not going to despair, that we're not going to feel so demoralized that we get paralyzed. Uh, and then the next thing that we do is just strengthen our resolve and our determination and our ambition and do what we've done at the most critical times in Canada's history, which is to come together and to act in a, in a decisive way. So what we need to do is more than anything, agree at every level of government, uh, within civil society, that this is going to be our top priority, uh, that we are going to marshal all of our resources, all of our innovation and creativity uh, toward this goal, uh, and that we are going to do it in a cooperative way and in a collaborative way and in a way that uh, demonstrates uh, to the world that Canada is going to be a leader on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. I think that the for Alberta, the pipeline is a major issue for, for them there. And I can I can understand it. There's jobs involved uh, in this. What would you say to people who are, are you know, championing the, the continuation of the pipeline? I would say that uh, first uh, and foremost, whenever Greens talk about uh, um, our move towards a green economy and a move away from fossil fuels, we are thinking first and foremost about the people uh, who uh, are working in that industry and whose livelihoods are at stake and how we're going to make sure that the, their communities aren't displaced, that they have alternative uh, jobs. And I say this even more personally because my brother, until the pandemic, created a bust uh, out in Alberta in the oil and gas sector. Uh, he was working as a roughneck out on the oil cruise in Alberta. Uh, and so we need to make sure that we do this with the time that we have. I'm so concerned uh, that uh, we are going to leave this too late. And just as we saw out on the East Coast uh, during the cod fishery, uh, when things were left too late and then the whole industry collapsed and then all those communities were displaced and they've never returned, uh, that we're going to do the same thing here. Uh, the fact is that this is probably the peak, um, peak decade for oil um, that is going to keep declining and probably even faster given uh, what the IPCC has said. And so this is the time to diversify. And the great news <laughs> is that uh, we have the skills, um, the workers have the training to take these jobs that pay more money, that are safer, that let them go home at the end of the day. Um, it's really a good news story, uh, as long as we have the political will to start our movement in that direction now. Absolutely. A green economy does not leave, mean we're living without, you know, lights and, and we're, you know, out shooting our meals or whatever. It's still going to be a good life. It's just going to be a different life. Better, better. You know, this is the thing. This is the greatest economic opportunity that we've had since the Industrial Revolution. That, that's because it's a huge, huge transformation. Uh, and so when you're talking about something this big that involves 
changes to infrastructure, building new infrastructure, uh, when you're talking about in new technologies coming online, when you're talking about creating whole new sectors of the economy, that is a tremendous opportunity for growth. And I can tell you, Candice, that there is a green rush going on globally. Uh, this is like the gold rush where countries are positioning themselves to become the most competitive green economies because that's exactly what is going to secure their future prosperity. Uh, so this isn't even about, you know, will we be as well off as we were before? This is our chance to be even better off, but in a way that is going to protect the planet at the same time, which has got to be the feel-good story of this election. And and so just going to switch tracks here a bit, and obviously not top of the headlines right now, but top of mind for a lot of Canadians is the pain that our Indigenous people are going through right now. Um, and, you know, the... I guess, literal inaction that's taken place with the TRC. So uh, what is the green plan uh, to, to address this? You always give me the words that I need. Action. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we are going to take inaction and replace it with action. Uh, we've seen that over the, not just the last six years of, of, the, uh, of the Liberal government, but even prior to that, we have heard the words, we have heard the sounds, and we have not seen the action. Every time uh, Indigenous rights, uh, Indigenous sovereignty and self-determination come up against uh, what the government wants to do or the, uh, the partisan ambition of the government, uh, it loses out. So whether that's um, in trampling on Indigenous rights to build the TMX pipeline, trampling on Indigenous rights to build the coastal gas link, trampling on Indigenous, um, uh, indigenous nations, that have asked for Line 5 to be cancelled uh, out uh, in Ontario. Um, the Mi'kmaq fisher, uh, fishers who are still fighting just to have the right to fish, uh, to earn a living for their families. Uh, we again, we've heard the words, but when you know the rubber hits the road, we're not seeing it. So we are here to say that we are going to be guided and led by Indigenous leadership on these issues, that uh, it is the time for self-determination, sovereignty, and true nation-to-nation -nation engagement. And it is absolutely something that we are committed to. When you're obviously you're on what she said. So if I don't talk about women, what am I here for? Uh, you know, women have been really hit hard during this pandemic and, and our rights have been thrown back, you know, decades. Uh, how can we make up the ground quickly on this and address it? Because we can't obviously let this continue a moment longer. Absolutely. You know, uh, women uh, and uh, there's certain, let's say, uh, themes, certain topics, uh, issues that uh, we need to use as an overarching lens, as a cross-cutting theme for everything that we're doing. And uh, gender, uh, women is absolutely one of those. We should always be asking ourselves as we go forward, how does each and every policy, uh, each and every piece of legislation uh, impact women? How is it going to help, as you said, make up for uh, the, uh, the uh, losses that have happened during the pandemic? How do we prevent uh, the, the, um, the rollback in, in uh, women's progress, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in terms of, uh, of um, pay equity, whether it's in terms of childcare? How do we ensure that those things don't become structural? Uh, so that, that implicates every part of government. And um, we know how to do this because we have done this in foreign affairs. You know, we have said to ourselves, whenever we're putting in place a foreign affairs policy or development policy, how does it impact women? 
So that's the only way to do it. You know, we always make the mistake of siloing things and saying we're going to talk about gender and women in this box and then forget about it everywhere else. Um, we just have to have that di a different approach. Uh, and, uh, and then, of course, always um, the, the will uh, and the leadership uh, to enact the vision. I mean, the, the last one, obviously, elephant in the room is the is COVID. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of debate about the timing of this election and logistics of running a campaign as we enter a fourth wave. Uh, so what are some of the biggest hurdles you're facing right now trying to connect with voters? I mean, obviously, you can't have a lot of face-to-faces. I mean, Candace, what are we doing here? I mean, what is going on? What, why, why are we in this election? It is the, it, that is the elephant in the room. What the heck are we doing in this election? Um, we have been able to knock on doors and again, a COVID safe way. And you know, you knock and then you step back uh, two meters from the door. Um, of course, people are hesitant to answer the door, but I can tell you that most of the time when they do, the first thing that they say is, I don't know why we're in this election in the first place. If they even know that an election is happening because there are still people that don't. Uh, I think that it was incredibly irresponsible to call an election, not only during the fourth wave of a pandemic, uh, but also as we have forest fires raging, people who have been evacuated from their homes, uh, and historic drought that is unfolding on the prairies right now. I mean, one that worse than any that we've ever seen, um, you know, and we could go and then just people trying to pull their lives back together after everything that we've been through over the last uh, year and a half. So, uh, for us, this was not the time to do it. And I believe that part of a democracy is ensuring that people can make an informed choice. I don't know exactly how you make an informed choice when you're distracted by all of those other things. I, I didn't mention Afghanistan as well, where we've heard our former generals telling us that all of our attention at this moment should have been on how to get our friends who helped us out of Afghanistan. So I'm, I'm, I'm peeved and I know a lot of people in Canada are. You, you, I believe you are correct. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Anna Mee. Uh, and we recorded this time, so great news. I'll be able to share this with everybody. <laughs> Good well, luck on the wonderful. campaign trail. <laughs> thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And you know, second time is twice as nice. So I'm happy that I was able to um, connect back with you. And you know, I hope you'll invite me back soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Anna Thank you, Candace. Have a story for what she said? Email us at 1059theregion.com. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 1059 The Region. You're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off of you. You'll be like heaven to touch. I want to hold you so much. At long last love has arrived. RBC's She's the Boss this week is profiling Red Girl Rising and the Matriarch Resistance. Ivy Richardson is the founder of Red Girl Rising, a wellness through movement initiative and Team 700, British Columbia's first competitive Indigenous youth boxing team. Together with Lisa Canoris, they co-founded Matriarch Resistance in a direct response to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. They join me now to share the why behind their business. Welcome to the show, ladies. Hi. Hi, Candice. Thanks for having us. I, I love everything about what you're doing. Uh, and so I want you to share with my audience because it's so important. So first, let's start with Red Girl Rising, Ivy. Where did you come up with this idea? 
Yeah, so I've seen a gap um, just in accessible movement programs within our communities. So I wanted to kind of bridge, fill that gap, and also fusing um, two of my passions of working in community and movement. And so I, um, I did this by collaborating with uh, community serving organizations to break down barriers to making movement accessible for their communities. So that was kind of the, the foundation of Red Girl Rising was making movement accessible for community. So where then does Lisa and the matriarch resistance come in? Yeah, so that actually started, I was reminded from a Facebook post my sister Lisa put out. And so maybe uh, I'll pass the mic now to Lisa to kind of talk more about how that came to be. It was a one year memory. I ended up doing a call out because I'm very collective in the way that I think. And I am, as in the last two years, I'm finally starting to build a community, hence with COVID. And then I thought, you know, if I want to learn kickboxing or some sort of self-defense or boxing, what does that look like? And so I kind of just like put it out in the Facebook world. And then I got lots of feedback. And then this is when Ivy uh, wanted to collaborate on this idea. And this is where Matriarch Resistance, we didn't even have a name for the program, but we ended up meeting here in Victoria almost a year to the date. We're coming up on our one year, which is amazing. And so, yeah, we've been just working on it the last year collectively together, bringing Indigenous women and femmes to create safe spaces, to be able to hold each other up in our skills and our talents, while also keeping our sovereignty, which is our body safe, together. I really love that you have weaved together a business and building community. That is not an easy feat. What has this meant to the communities that you're in? Yeah, well, I'm seeing it um, through the boxing team actually the most at this point because that's been the the program that's been going the longest. And, you know, I hear, you know, a lot of the feedback is this is their safe place. I'm feeling empowered. I'm feeling um, just more ready to walk in a good way in this life, right? Yeah, through Matriarch Resistance, um, we actually ended up reaching out and we got some comments. And even with those comments, like um, creating this safe space with Indigenous women and femmes has been such a success in the way that there has been sisterhood. Like me and Ivy have created a sisterhood through this. And I know with the other Indigenous women and femmes, like because at first we were in person limited because of COVID, And then once the second lockdown happened, we decided to go virtual. And so virtual, um, we have gone internationally. Like we have um, Indigenous women from, you know, I could say around the world. And so that's kind of like our goal is to be able to um, collectively come together with our different knowledges and combining traditional knowledge. And hopefully now that things are open to be able to visit these Indigenous women and femmes, then, you know, down the road, we want to turn this into more of like a mentorship leadership program where it's kind of like a train the trainer where we can leave matriarch resistance within that community, again, creating safe spaces, collectively coming together and holding each other up in our power. So you are, you are definitely, you have forward momentum. This, you know, you're a, a year in for matriarch resistance. Uh, what's next? Where do you go next? 
Well, now that we're allowed to be in person, we definitely want to be in community. And that's been the missing piece, I think, for us is uh, when COVID hit, we went online. And um, as great as online is, you know, it's it's there's still a little missing piece there. And so definitely next step is being actually in community, making those connections, building those relationships, creating, a, you know, that sisterhood. All right. So I want people to be able to find you, obviously, for our listeners out in Surrey, obviously, they're going to be able to connect with you. But for women across Canada who want to find out more, uh, where can they go? So they can go, they can find us on our Facebook page, Matriarch Resistance. They can find us on our Instagram page. Again, it's Matriarch Resistance. And then uh, we have a Matriarch Resistance page through my Red Girl Rising um, websites. That's www.redgirlrising.com. All right. Thank you to Ivy and Lisa from Red Girl Rising and Matriarch Resistance for joining me today. And thank you to our sponsor, RBC. RBC is here to support you through digital first solutions, advice, and services that go beyond banking to help realize your true potential. Because owning a small business takes something special. That's why RBC is behind you every step of the way. Visit rbc.com backslash business. Joining me now for Saturday Night at the Movies is Anne Brody with a whole host of new movies and TV shows for us this week, starting with Together. Oh, it's amazing. James McAvoy and Sharon Hogan, who Brit fans will know quite well, even though McAvoy's done American stuff. But uh, they play a young couple going through the pandemic in the UK. Her mother's in a nursing home. She hasn't seen her in a year. And they have a little child. But they're in a spot, they've been together too long, and they start sniping at each other. Not in a vicious way, but he says, he just looks at her and says, I hate your face, I hate your lips. And, and she comes back with stuff too, but it's not from a place of, of hate. It's from suddenly allowing one another to speak freely and honestly, to be able to cope with what's happening and all the, these feelings that are piling on top of them. And I mean, in, in a way, it's admirable that they can be so open and honest and still survive. Um, it's it's astonishing. The performances are just out of this world. Um, and, and she has a worry because there's the people at her mother's nursing home haven't been told yet to wear masks. And each chapter is titled with the number of dead in the UK. So it's incredible. But what I love about it is that their bond allows them freedom of expression and agency and the freedom to be real. It's Stephen Daldry, who's renowned for his elegant films that are very truthful about the human condition and and tasteful. So it's it's a real winner. And that you said that, you know, that, it, that he tells these stories about the human condition. Watching the trailer, that's exactly what I felt. This is going to resonate with people all around the globe because we had too much togetherness through this pandemic. Yes. And as we've seen, the divorce rate has skyrocketed. Uh, know, right. <laughs> so 
So I think a lot of couples will actually really, this will resonate with them because it is true to life. It's absolutely true to life. It's absolutely reflects what's going on, what's going on and what's not over yet. All right. Let's talk about Lost Leonardo. Cause you say this is oh, your favorite geez. film of the year. Oh, oh, uh, yes. It's a thriller. It's a documentary thriller, believe it or not. Somebody, an art hunter found a painting in in a New Orleans flea market, bought it for $1,155. The owner claimed that it was a Leonardo da Vinci. Now, da Vinci only made 15 paintings. And this is this would be the first one discovered in in a century if it is. So we watch it, it, we follow it as it's sold on and sold on and sold on. Uh, the hype growing every step of the way. Um, uh, it's, it's gripping. It, it's Salvatore Monday, who is a friend of, of uh, Da Vinci's. And when Christie's finally gets a hold of it, they do a whole marketing, they cheapen it. I mean, they put a whole marketing campaign calling him the male Mona Lisa. And it is finally sold and is expected to be kept in a vault underneath Geneva, where a lot of these free ports are, which is where all the wealthy people store their valuables in these uh, locked chambers underground. So, you know, no one will get to see it. Um, And I won't tell you what eventually it'll make your hair curl. It will make your hair curl and watching these experts go at it, especially since it was never proven. It still hasn't been proven to be a Leonardo. And and we may may never know the truth. We may never know. (laughs) All right. uh, We got a couple of minutes left. Tell me about only murders in the building. Oh, man. Oh, man. Martin Short and um, Steve Martin together again at last with believe it or not, Selena Gomez, they play residents in this beautiful old world uh, Manhattan apartment building. Well, someone dies and they're bored. So they decide to investigate. And it's just a bunch of fools rushing in. And they even implicate Sting, who happens to live in the building. He's got a pretty good role. Uh, Eventually, it's a series. Eventually, it turns out that... um, Selena knew the guy and she was holding back on them. So then they, they make this hellish trip to New Jersey uh, and Oliver's Martin Short's dog is murdered and they begin a podcast. Then someone sends him a message and the podcast or I and you, because clearly they're, they're getting close to the truth. It's hysterical. It's on star on Disney and on Hulu. Um, very funny, very winning and warm and lovely. And well, that is that is what we need. Building. Yes. Bring the funny. Uh, I want to talk about Sparking Joy uh, as the last one today because I am packing up to move. And this one really hit me because uh, I am trying to oh. be ruthless in what I'm packing. Oh, so. then she will approve. She will approve what you're doing. She, only keep the essential. You know all her rules. I mean, there's no dust bunnies under her couch. And everything is decluttered and captured and kept in, in things just enough to be kept in. It's um, a clearing through. She goes to a couple people's homes who are moving or having some sort of life change. And despite all their protestations, pulls them into the new century. And they're so much happier. Well, I I, I agree with that. So you have all of these, obviously, and much, much more. 
listed on the website, what she said, talk.com. And Anne, you'll be back next week. Thanks so much for this. I will. Thank you. Bye, Candace. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. What about us? What about all the times you said you had the answers? What about us? What about all the broken happy ever after? York Region, which borders Toronto, is one of the top wealthiest regions in Canada, filled with mansions, fancy cars, and world-class stores and restaurants. It's also become a hotspot for homelessness, and that's not the only area in Canada that can expect to see a surge in homelessness in the coming years. That's what we're talking about next with Alina Turner from Help Seeker. Welcome to the show, Alina. Thanks, and happy to be here. This is uh, this pandemic has affected us in ways we can't even we don't we don't know all of the ways yet. But homelessness is definitely going to be one of them. We're seeing it now with a lack of rentals, bidding wars over rental properties. Um, so, how did Help Seeker become involved, for starters, in in this project? Mm-hmm. So. Lots of our team members have had lots and lots of research uh, years behind our belts working in in the social sector. So we are a social tech uh, and social innovation, uh, social enterprise, if you will. Uh, B Corp is what our formal title is from an accreditation perspective. And we develop digital solutions that leverage data science and leverage new uh, digital tools to help Uh, resolve some of these social challenges. And so that's how we came to this project through the COVID uh, digital super cluster call for innovative approaches to respond. Uh, And we made a pitch to the government of Canada through this process to uh, start applying artificial intelligence and machine learning to some of these social challenges in the context of COVID. So we took on this challenge of using machine learning specifically to look at all of the data sets that we could get our hands on and see what regions were going to uh, jump up in terms of homelessness, suicide, and domestic violence and start using that information to help policy makers and decision makers respond in a more nuanced way to these issues than, than they might have otherwise. So that's how we came to it. Now, I feel like my listeners, so I have listeners in, in York Region, in Ottawa, and in Surrey, BC. I feel like my listeners in York Region um, may be surprised to hear this about homelessness in their area. Were you surprised? I was surprised that York jumped out uh, compared to the other uh, communities that we looked at. And we, we looked at just about 70 communities around homelessness. And to see York, uh, the trajectory at which the homelessness population was growing there, again, according to the algorithm, was um, was significantly higher than anywhere else in Canada. So the, the velocity is what surprised us. Uh, I don't think we're surprised that a region that's close to Toronto, which is another site where we have, you know, obviously this, this issue is quite significant in Toronto, um, Montreal, Vancouver, anywhere you have a large population, you're, you're going to, to have a higher 
uh, higher numbers, of course, per capita, but to see the velocity speed up like that in York is, is obviously really concerning. And it was definitely a surprise to us, especially given your introduction that this is a relatively affluent community um, compared to other parts in, in Ontario. Yeah, it does actually. It's one of the top seven wealthiest regions in the country. So that is alarming. Uh, so, But let's talk about Ottawa and Surrey uh, as well, because I want to make sure I'm including those areas. What did you find in these areas? Well, and again, I'll, I'll speak to, to the, the changes. So what we wanted to see is if COVID is impacting these communities in the, in the way that we're seeing it impact, so the housing prices, cost of living, et cetera, uh, employment markets, GDP, if all these things are considered alongside um, the pressures on mental health, the pressures on, the, uh, on our social safety nets, et cetera, what is that going to look like in two years from now? And so, uh, like I said, York jumped out as as one key one that that uh, increased by like you know one hundred and forty percent was the kind of speed of the trajectory. But uh, we see that in other parts of the country too, and we see that in in this in Surrey as well. There's there's an increase, but it's not as significant. It's only two percent versus one hundred and forty percent. And so it's happening, but it's not happening at the same at the same rate. So it's not to say that we're not going to see uh, homelessness increases there as well. It's just in comparison to it's it's not as as uh, as significant according to to this scenario. Um, now on the Ottawa side, we see increases there as well, but again, not as significant as as what we see in New York region. So I think that the takeaway for me is that. Well, well, these homelessness is going to continue to be a challenge and going to continue to be a, a concern across the country. It happens at different speeds or velocities in different parts of, of even the same province, right? Like Ottawa versus, uh, versus Toronto versus Barrie versus Hamilton. So that means that our responses have to be really uh, strategic in these communities because clearly something is, is occurring in these communities that things are moving at, at very uh, different speeds. So why? Uh, why? And then what does that mean for policy? What does that mean for interventions that we need to to put in, into play there? So let's talk about the interventions then. Do you have um, recommendations for interventions uh, in these areas that are well, like New York, for example, at 140 uh, percent, there needs to something needs to happen yesterday. Yeah. 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 I mean, clearly, clearly something's uh, some things afoot. Um, so the the things that you want to really get on top of is, you know, what are what are the interventions that are, can be put into place right away? So what what are low hanging fruit that we can mobilize very very quickly to to remedy this and to and to get on top of this this jump that might be happening differently than other parts of of the community of these uh, pro- provincial trends. So our are rental increases happening at a disproportionate rate in this community, for instance? And again, your point about uh, wealth is, is interesting. So are conversions happening, our homeownership, this bubble that we're talking about, is that um, pushing certain populations into, into vulnerable circumstances right now? We won't even pick that up until two years from now when they show up in shelters downstream. So therefore our interventions need to be preventative 
in nature. So are there rent subsidies that we can target high, um, high risk uh, communities, low income tenant communities? Those are gonna be the, the opportunities that we have. Um, labor opportunities that we might have for interventions are related to precarious work. So are certain groups now losing, losing work in these communities that in the service industry and, and therefore you know, tapping into savings and therefore, et cetera, et cetera. So to me, it's, it's the low hanging fruit around preventative work. And then of course, this is not taking away from all the heavy lifting everybody needs to do around affordable housing overall. So all of the stuff that governments know they should be doing in terms of adding stock, adding affordable housing, protecting the affordable housing that they have, uh, ensuring that the social housing is up to par and accessible, um, the service continuums that we're putting a significant amount of money into, are those transparent to folks that are at risk? Do people even know where to go for all of these services? There's a lot out there that, that unfortunately people don't know exists. And so if we were able to take that wealth of social supports that are out there and focus it on um, those vulnerable in the York region to actually intervene before this this gets this actually before this scenario becomes reality right like this this is the cool part about thinking ahead is that you have an opportunity to get ahead as well uh the trick is that's not kind of how we do the work we we tend to be reactive we tend to wait until people become homeless and then we start doing the, the heavy and really costly work of rehousing and rehabilitation or treatment and recovery and all these things that are still need to be there but we actually have an opportunity in new york potentially to get ahead of a wave that that you know we have the data to to suggest may be underway uh, differently than in other parts of the country. So that would be the, the challenge to leaders is to, to get ahead of this. Yeah, and not kick it down the road for the next uh, the next people in power. I want people to be able to find out more about you and Help Seeker and this study. Uh, so where can they go? Yeah, check out uh, helpseeker.co. Uh, and there, you know, you can fill your boots with <clears throat> information on us and and this work and if you're one of those decision makers and you want to dig into this further i definitely just get in touch with us we're we're a team of about 55 people in other words you can get to the right person pretty quickly so we we want to be accessible to to folks that are that care about this and and want to do this work differently and and more strategically so by all means uh, get in touch and if you're somebody who is experiencing risk and on any social issue, domestic violence, suicide, homelessness, but also any income-related or labor-related challenges, helpseeker.org is the other site where we have all of these supports available in every community across Canada in, I think, 12 different languages accessible to you. So uh, there's there's something in this for, for everyone, hopefully, that can be of value. All right. Amazing. Thank you for doing the work that you do. It's so important. And thank you for sharing this on the show. Uh, we'll have you back again soon. Yeah, you betcha. Thanks, Candice. What about us? What about us? What about Money has been burning a hole in some of our pockets, and the temptation may be to get out and spend like there's no tomorrow. 
It's called YOLO spending, and it's probably not the smartest financial move you'll make. Joining me now is Stephanie Chabot from the Finance Diaries. Stephanie helps educate people about personal finance topics that will help them get ahead in life. The Finance Diaries is a 100% judgment-free educational platform, and that's what we need on this show is a lot of judgment-free advice. Welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. So why is YOLO spending um, exploding right now? It's been a really difficult year. Um, Well, even more than a year now, I guess a year and a half that we've been in the pandemic and COVID mode and our lives have changed significantly. Maybe for some people, they kept going to work and they kept doing things. But for many people, there were jobs lost. There wasn't any more travel. We weren't necessarily commuting with all the working from home. Um, kids and people and everyone, no gyms, no extracurricular activities, and all these different kinds of things kind of came to a halt. So what happened is that people may have decided to do some online shopping, but in general, started saving a lot more money than maybe they had before. And yeah, we saw that. We saw that actually in a headline just today that Canadians paid down a record amount of debt, uh, which is, you know, I'm sure for you as a, as a financial expert, you're cheering that on, right? Yeah, I've seen some people do incredible things this year, paying off student loans and credit card debt, and even starting to invest for the first time ever. So that is the momentum that we want to try to see keep going. Obviously, not at the same level. It'll be hard, but it's definitely something that we want to try to continue doing as we move out of this part of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about the psychology then behind YOLO spending. There's a lot that goes behind it because we realized this year as YOLO spending implies, so you only live once, is that you truly only do live once. Some people got sick, people lost relatives or friends, people lost their jobs. There was a lot of anxiety and anxiousness about what was going on. And being deprived of all these things that we love to do, to see our friends, to travel, to see our family, to hug someone. And what happened is that people did turn partially to retail therapy. So a lot of shopping online, we could see a lot of growth in that part of things. But then as the world reopens and we are able to do things that we weren't able to do before, we get something in our brain when we buy things or when we acquire something new, whether it's new or used, but it's new to us, we get a dopamine rush in our brain. So it's almost like it's a drug. And what happens when we YOLO spend, well, we're remembering how hard we had it in the last year. And it even amplifies how how much we want to buy something. So maybe something that you might not have bought two years ago or spent money on two years ago, you're remembering how short life is and how at any second variant X, Y, Z could pop up and put us back to where we were and therefore spending money sometimes uh, absolutely out of control. So there's your YOLO spending. I have to admit, I I believe I just YOLO spent on a Jeep. (laughs) (laughs) It happens. It definitely happens. All right. Well, let's talk about some healthier ways to maybe manage this feeling because there is this pent-up demand that we have to do things we were denied for so long, but I, it, you know, it's not smart or prudent to obviously go and spend everything we have and then some on these things. 
Exactly. So that's one of the first things that we need to remember is that as much as we want to rush out and catch up on everything, we also have to remember what got us here in the first place. So even though there might not be another full lockdown closure or whatever it is that happens, we can still lose our jobs. Things can still happen. And it's very important that we pace ourselves and that we make financial decisions that we can continue to move forward. So one of the first things that I always talk about uh, on my page and when I coach people is about budgeting. I know people hate the word budgeting for some reason. There's just this negative connotation to it. So I like to call it a financial framework. It's very important to have one of these because there's nothing stopping you from having your treat yourself fund, from having your dining out and all these different things in your financial framework. You can do that. So the general rule of thumb with that is that 50% of your budget should go towards your needs. So what you need to survive 30% towards your wants and 20% towards your savings slash investing. You can obviously play with those percentages, however best they work for you. But if you have this number that's allocated, then you're able to see well, you know, like this Jeep makes sense. Going out here makes sense. This makes sense with what I've allocated towards it. You can play with the categories because maybe people's budgets changed a lot from being in full lockdown to being able to go out. But a budget is very important or financial framework for you to work out. They're super easy. You can find templates online. You can make one yourself. And it's important because maybe that way you can say, well, I didn't use my full budget from last week, or maybe I'll dip into next week and I just will skip a day or whatever it is that you want to do. So that is the most important part is to keep track of what we're spending our money on, because we don't want to go all in and try to catch up all at once, only to maybe find out our business might uh, be letting people go again or whatever could happen financially speaking. Um, also important to keep uh, the emergency fund stacked in case these kinds of things happen, but then also finding activities that are and doing things that are not necessarily going to break the bank. So right. I know that a lot of people adapted over the last year. You probably are sick of Zoom <laughs> and having Zoom family gatherings and Zoom nights out with your friends, but you can keep having those kinds of nights in that you invite people over and let's say you cook together. And that's a super fun activity that you could do because you're doing it all together. You're still physically together. You're still having dinner. You might not get kicked out of the table for being at it too long. And you can do activities like that. Um, You can uh, do all kinds of things at home. You can go out. We learned a lot about (laughs) having social gatherings in parks, but there's nothing stopping you from continuing to do these things and just pacing ourselves as we ease back uh, into our regular lives. All right. Well, you're always sharing amazing things on TikTok and uh, Instagram Reels. So I want people to be able to find you to keep up with you. So where can they go? So on TikTok and on Instagram, you can find me. My handle is at the finance diaries and you can follow along there. I talked a lot about travel uh, in the last month because that's what I was doing and how to travel with a budget in mind. And I still had a lot of fun. I can promise you that it is not a terrible way to travel. And you can also find uh, my podcast just about anywhere that you can stream podcasts. And that is also called The Finance Diaries. All right, Stephanie, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure again. Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. 
Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. teens is hard at the best of times. Parenting teens in a pandemic is even more challenging. Thankfully, what she said has Allie Payne, our very own expert on all things to do with adolescents, who helps parents end the baffling blow-ups and painful disconnection with their teens to create respectful relationships without giving up or giving in. Welcome back, Allie. I've missed having you here. Thank you. I know it's so good to have you here. So today we're going to talk about the four horsemen and not the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which that feels like it's been unleashed on the world too, but (laughs) this is the four horsemen of relationships. And, and, and you say it's sort of the cornerstone of any relationship. We really should know what they are. So I had never heard of it. So let's start talking. What is the first horseman of, uh, of relationships? Sure. So the first thing I want to say is these are not mine. Um, These are well studied and documented by Dr. John and Julie Gottman from the Gottman Institute. And they have proven that these are four of the most toxic communication styles and some of the simplest downfalls of every single relationship. So let's name them. The first is criticism and sarcasm. They fit into one bucket. Um, Defensiveness or blame. That would be number two, Uh, stonewalling, which is, uh, it's a fancy name for the silent treatment. So that's number three and contempt. Contempt is the most toxic and that would be number four. And these four toxic styles are actually quite prevalent through society. In fact, sarcasm, which was brought essentially by Chandler, Chandler Bing on Friends really made sarcasm a very popular thing. Sarcasm is one of the most promoted and widely accepted toxic communication styles. I'm nodding my head here because uh, sarcasm has been part of my, my personality for so long. It wasn't until recently that I really started to have an awareness around it and have pulled back on that because I thought it was funny or, you know, cutting or, you know, a little bit uh, edgy. And as it turns out, it's kind of hurtful. And, but until you, until you, it's brought to your attention, you're really not aware. Yeah. And, you know, I love your point, what you just said there, because sarcasm is humor in one way. And I don't want anybody to not be humorous. I don't want anyone to not bring their funny self because good grief right now, we need more humor. The issue with sarcasm is that it's like taking um, a a poop sandwich and wrapping it in humor and then delivering it as if someone is going to find that funny. So sarcasm is a way of saying something perhaps harsh, maybe a difficult truth um, where I feel unsafe or unskilled uncomfortable to say what I really need to say. So instead, I'm going to wrap that sharp knife in something really funny. The issue is the receiver isn't quite getting the humor because their brain actually understands, wait a minute, something was off in that. So they don't always get the humor and they also don't get the important communication it was wrapped in. So it kind of defeats the purpose. But here's the thing I wanted to say about teens. 
Teenagers will use these toxic communication styles. And again, because as you said, a lot of people are unaware of them when they feel unskilled to say what they need to say. So what we're talking about as parents here is helping them build emotional safety and helping them develop emotional vocabulary so that it's safe for them to make difficult communications and you model that for them so they don't need to use sarcasm or criticism. And most importantly, teenagers use defensiveness and blame. Oh my goodness, I think it just says teenagers right across that section um, because it is a way of avoiding taking ownership and responsibility because the brain says that is terrifying, scary, and you might die. That, that's our primitive brain says that. So teenagers lean into defensiveness and blame because emotionally they already feel hijacked and charged. And so it's about really creating some safety saying, hey, look, it sounds like, sounds like you're a little bit defensiveness. What's going on for you? Just getting really curious so that we can avoid these toxic styles and keep our conversations healthy. And I'm curious too, because I think a lot of, of, lot of uh, personality traits that our teens have have obviously come from us. So Absolutely. How, how do we address that topic? For example, I mean, I'm going to go back to sarcasm quickly because I think it's something we all relate to. Your kid is being sarcastic. You've been sarcastic with your kid. How do you now address this and say, wait a minute, we need to, we need to reset this. Like, is that all you need to say maybe? Or how do you make it so that there's an awareness in the house, a, a safe word? What, what do you suggest? Yeah. Yeah, I, and th that's a great point. I think the best thing to do is to call yourself out. So share your own awareness. Look, I realize that this is something I'm doing and saying when what, I, what, I, what I'm understanding now is I'm not necessarily communicating something that's really important to me that I need to say. And I just got in the habit of doing that, but I realize it's not constructive, as constructive. Um, and I still wanna be funny, but what I'm gonna commit to do is, is working on taking a breath and, and giving myself permission to say what I need to say without having to wrap it in humor. So that's all really you do need to say is because the moment you start articulating what your insight is and what you're trying to do, you make it safe for them to do it as well. Then if you find they're being really sar sarcastic, you can say to them, hey, look, I love your humor. I'm really curious is like, what is it under the humor that was there anything really important that you wanted me to hear because I want to make sure that I hear it so you see you're making what they have just important and that they matter to you but you're calling them on wrapping it in humor without it being a very um uh derogatory way you know Ali I always love having you on the show and the reason why is because you allow parents to show their humanity. You don't expect them to be perfect in this really oh, no. in this partnership, really this dance we have with our teenagers. Uh, so I, I can't wait to have you back again the next time. But for now, uh, where can people connect with you? Because you always have such great advice. Thank you. Best place is my website, alipain.com, A-L-Y-P-A-I-N.com or probably Instagram, TikTok at alipain. And it's worth noting here that you do help parents privately who are really struggling with one-on-one -on -one coaching, right? Yes. I actually have some group coaching programs. I have online programs. I run a five-day challenge coming up in September. So just check my website and you'll definitely find all the details there. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Allie. Thank you. That's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com. 
And be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to re-listen to this episode and find full details for all of today's guests. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.